Okay, friends, the story begins. We are continuing Pesuke de Zimra verses of praise. We're on page 33, middle of the page. Would, would you call this the middle or the bottom? Because it's kind of both. So call it the mid, mid-bottom. The mid-bottom. Okay, there we go. <laughs> These are praises authored by King David. They're excerpted from Tehillim. We spoke about last week praising God with body and soul. The commentary, the al pointed out that it's in future tense, and we'll notice that most of these are, a lot of the, a lot of Tehillim is in future tense. Take a look at the first line in the English. Praise the Lord. I'm having this microphone issue. I can't see my book now. Okay. We're good. First rule issues. Okay. Praise the Lord. Sing to our God, for he is good. For he is present, he is pleasant. Praise befits him. God is deserving of praise, of our praise. Now, it's important to point out that throughout Davening, when we praise God, it's not that he needs our praise. You know, he has a very healthy self-esteem, but it's more that we need to praise him. Question real quick. What's the Hebrew word for pleasant? Pleasant in the English in Hebrew it's naim, and it, it seems like such a mild word. Pleasant in English. In English, it's mild. It's just like pleasant, pleasant. It's not. It's, it's not. Uh, there's not lots of ruah. There's not lots of spirit in the world. In the word, do you mean like in the the phonetics of the word or or the connotation? The connotation. It's just pleasant. Like, pleasant like is like how you would say pleasant, pleasant in Hebrew. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> no, that that's interesting. That's interesting, but but there's something deep about that. Ple- the the concept of pleasure and pleasantness is also represents a certain level of of depth that is beyond the whole hoorah. But that that is in a that is a good observation. Take a look at the second line, middle of the sentence. The Lord is the rebuilder of Jerusalem. He will gather the the dispersed of Israel. There will now. It's interesting. King King David was alive prior to the construction of the first temple. Right, he certainly didn't see its destruction, which was four hundred and twenty years later. King David theoretically should have built the temple because he was the king. He had to hand that over to his son. He wasn't able to build the temple because he was involved in killing, not murder. It was permissible killing. It was for war. But God didn't want that to be associated with his home. Anybody who kills isn't allowed to build God's home. King David couldn't build God's home. He handed that over to King Solomon, his son. But apparently he prophesizes. There's different ways of interpreting this, but the way I understand it is he's prophesizing that there will be a time that the temple is going to be destroyed. But we still know that it's going to be rebuilt and that God is going to gather the dispersed of the Jewish people. And by the way, that's right now. Right now, our temple is not yet built. We know Hashem is going to build it. We're dispersed. We're everywhere. And God is going to gather us. The, the way the commentary Malbim, Malbim is one of my favorite commentaries. 
it's I'll, I'll be honest as throughout my studies when I was younger I never really got into the Malbim until recently um as preparing with these classes and the Malbim says something interesting the the Malbim points out <clears throat> that he's going to gather the Jewish people he himself is going to bring them to Israel that's what this means he's going to bring us to the temple He's gonna make this. He's gonna build this temple, and he's gonna, on his own, God is gonna be the one to gather all of us personally, one by one. God really wants every single one of us. But take a look at the next verse. You're gonna see a build up here. Just hold on. You'll see where my drift is for in a second. Take a look at line number three. Right after the period, toward the end of the line. This is a beautiful sentence. I'm going to read it in the Hebrew first, actually. It's also line number three, because just it's really beautiful. He heals those with a broken heart. Rofe means to heal. Broken, lev, heart. He binds up their wounds. As a part of exile, there's a trauma that comes with it. We have this deep, deep, deep trauma as Jewish people from the construction uh, from the destruction of the temple. You know how I know? Because what are Jews doing every Tisha B'Av? We're mourning a building that was destroyed <laughs> thousands of years ago. We have it, It's left us with a very deep trauma. You know, this, there's a story with Napoleon. There's a debate whether the story is true or not. I saw different uh, opinions. I shouldn't have said that. I, I'm, I'm learning through my teaching experience Never give disclaimers before you say what you want to say. It's better to disappoint people afterward. <laughs> Otherwise, they're not going to want to listen to you. <laughs> okay, pretend I didn't say that. A bunch of Jewish people were sitting on Tisha B'Av in Shul. And as customary, they were sitting on the floor, not in high chairs, sign of mourning. The lights were dimmed, or the candles were dimmed, as is the, the tradition. And they were weeping, reciting lamentations, Napoleon, this was in France, and a Jewish community in France, Napoleon comes by and is wondering, why are these Jewish people on the floor weeping? What are they crying about? So somebody tells him they're mourning because their palace was destroyed. And Napoleon is, like, thrown off. Number one, I didn't know the Jewish people had a palace. <laughs> He's the emperor. Number two, I didn't know it was destroyed. <laughs> how, how did this uh, go under the radar? Well, it's in Israel, and it was like a thousand years ago, <laughs> or fifteen hundred years ago. He's like, what? They gave him context to what exactly Tisha B'Av is all about, and he was so inspired. He said, "If there's there's this nation that can't let go of their building, it's surely going to be rebuilt one day." And uh, Napoleon was no Jew lover. He just he just saw that as a sign of of resilience. And what we're saying is, yes, the temple has been destroyed, but. God is going to rebuild it. He's going to gather all of us. He's going to heal the brokenhearted and bind up our wounds. The commentary Al-Sheikh, Rabbi Moshe Al-Sheikh, who's a Kabbalist from Tzfat, we quoted him last week, the Al-Sheikh says, the broken heart is referring to the Yetzer Hara. The evil inclination is trying to break our heart. It's trying to crush us. It's trying to break our spirit. But if we connect to God, despite us being in Galus, we can gain strength. We can build up resilience. The Al-Sheikh actually takes it a step further. We have a certain level of resilience that is actually not just in spite of exile, but because of exile. 
Exile strengthened us. Like they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or they thought the they tried to bury us. They didn't realize we were seeds. So as we're challenged, we gain strength throughout exile. Rabbi uh, Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who was known as the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, once said, I think this is this is actually in Hayom Yom, so for our Hayom Yom learners, you'll have to tell me where this is. He once said that when Mashiach comes, we're going to come to the Beit HaMikdash, and right, the world's going to be a very different place. And we're going to long for the days of Galos, the days of exile. Because when Mashiach comes, we're going to see how impactful all the mitzvahs we've been doing thus far was. How meaningful our mitzvahs, specifically in exile, are. How meaningful our resilience, specifically in exile, is. And that's what the, um, that itself is, is healing when we see the power of exile. In other words, don't see exile as a punishment. You sin, God destroys the temple, kicks you out for 1,700 years, 2,000 years. It, it's more than that. Exile is an opportunity for us to build ourselves so we can become ready for the next Beit HaMikdash. It's a building experience. When we go through trauma, trauma is trauma there to tra trauma can scar us. Traumatic experiences, I should say, can scar us and leave deep scars. But could, it could also be a growing experience, similar to the the ark, right? The story of the ark last week. The flood comes, but if you go in an ark, if you set yourself up properly, the water is not going to drown you. It's going to lift you. Now, the question comes, it, God is going to gather everybody, bring them to Jerusalem, all the dispersed of Israel. He's going to heal all of their hearts. How is that possible? There's a lot of Jews. <laughs> right, take a look at the next verse. This is line number four, toward the end of the line, right after the period. This is fascinating. He counts the number of stars, of the stars. He gives name to each of them. What does it have to do with anything? So random. I'm going to read from the top. I'm going to read the whole thing and just try to understand the flow here. It's like, stars? Like, what? God is healing me, right? God is healing me. He's going to take me to Israel. He's going to get rid of all my wounds. And he counts stars, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to just read this from the top so we can uh, just understand how there's got to be something deep here that that's like encrypted. Praise the Lord. Sing to our God for he is good for he is pleasant. Praise befits him. The Lord is the rebuilder of Jerusalem. He'll gather the dispersed of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of stars and gives name to each of them. <laughs> what is going on here? What, what What's happening? What's taking what what's going on? Okay, where else do we have a reference to stars in the Torah? I'm gonna give you a hint. It's this week's Torah portion. But I'm gonna cut you a little slack. It's actually tomorrow's reading, not today's reading. Okay. God goes to Abraham. Abraham's in his tent and he says, Abraham, come outside for a second. Can you step outside for a second? Abraham steps outside. He says, look at the heavens. What do you see? He says, I see stars. And God is prophesizing that he's going to have children as many as the stars. 
referring to the Jewish people. Right? God says to Abraham, Abraham, and by the way, he wasn't even Avraham, Abraham yet, he was Avram. Can you count those stars? No. Very good. That's how many children you're gonna have. They're gonna be in they're gonna be um numerously great like the stars. And there's a lot of significance there. Each Jew is like a star in commentaries such as the Malbim, and I think even the Al Sheikh explains um you have certain stars you don't even see. We don't know we don't know how many stars there are. We don't there's obviously many more stars than what we're able to see. So there's there is a lot more um there's a lot more than what's below the radar. Don't count the don't don't just rely on the uh ten year US census. <laughs> right, there's a lot more than that. The commentary Rashi asks, why did God have to go to Avraham and say, Can you step outside for a moment? Can't he just tell him to look out the window? Assuming he had a window. I don't know. Did he, ever, he had a tent. Maybe he didn't have a window, right? So it could just be one way to look at it. It's logistical. God, God says, Abraham, step outside. I want to show you this guy. But Rashi says that God was trying to convey a message. You have to step outside of the way you've been thinking until now. This is what God is telling to Abraham. Step outside the way you've been thinking until now. You got to think of things a little bit differently. You got to look at things differently. If you were to look in the stars from a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Astrologic perspective. Is that a word? From the perspective of astrology. From an astrologic perspective, it wasn't in the stars. He wasn't going to have kids. Abraham was how old at this point? 99, right? That's when he got his bris. Sarah wasn't too young either. It wasn't in the cards that they were going to have a child. So God was telling Abraham, this is what Rashi says, step outside. You got to look beyond that. The term for look, there's different words for, for, for looking, right? You could say look, you can say gaze. They're synonymous but they have different connotations. So the commentary, Rabbeinu Bahaya, one of my favorite commentaries. Rabbeinu Bahaya explains, when the Torah says to see, that means from below to above, you look up to something. But when it uses the term of gazing, which in Hebrew is habet, that's the term that's used, I bet to gaze, it's from above to below. So when God says, don't just look at the stars, gaze at those stars. Above to below, you're above those stars. You're above the predictions of astrology. Jews aren't run by nature. Jews are beyond that. So there's two messages here. God is going to disperse, gather all the dispersed of Israel. He's going to heal all the brokenhearted. And he could do that because he counts every single star. The Jewish people are, were prophesied to be as numerous as the stars, but God can count all of them. And he could even name all of them. God knows your name, which is a fascinating thing to think about, by the way. Because imagine you work for, for a, a huge company, uh, a Twitter. Let's get political here. No, I'm kidding. But... Uh, <laughs> Let's say you work for Twitter. 
I, I'm just using that as an example. I don't care about who owns Twitter, uh, but like it's catching everybody's attention. How many employees are at Twitter? Anybody know? Okay, somebody throw out a number. Just make it up. 10,000. Okay, 10,000 employees at Twitter. What are the chances that Elon Musk knows everybody's name? Zero. Zero, right? He has to delegate a team. He has a small team, and that team, he knows everybody's on that team's name, and that team has a team who has a team, who has a, right? And, and eventually everything branches out. But how many people are in this world? And, and let's just look at the Jewish population. How many Jews are there in the world? 13 million, according to the census? Maybe more? They're going to be as numerous as the stars, right? And God knows everybody's name. He knows every human being's name. He cares about everybody. To us, we're just stars. We're all over the place. And we all have our own function. But to God, they all have a name. He's going to gather every single Jewish person. Every single Jewish person is going to be accounted for. And by the way, this is how God values people. This is how we need to value people. Every single person needs to be accounted for. That's message number one. Now, message number two, we're like those stars because we're not. We're actually above the stars. right? Abraham gazed at the stars. He's above those stars. We're above, essentially above nature. Take a look at the next couple of verses. Five lines from the top toward the end of the sentence. Great is our master and abounding in might. His understanding is beyond reckoning. Doesn't make sense how he could know everybody, but that doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> Somebody once asked me a question once. He said, how do you believe this in this part of the Torah? It doesn't seem to make sense scientifically. I said, our existence for the past however many years doesn't make sense scientifically. <laughs> What makes sense? And nothing makes sense. But hey, we're here. It's working. So we're both in Pleasanton discussing the Torah as we speak. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the Lord strengthens the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Again, this is counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make sense. Usually, or one may think that if you're humble, you know, you're not going to make it. And if you're wicked, if you can cut corners and, you know, you'll make it. You'll make it big. But it's not true. It's counterintuitive. But we don't follow rules of nature. Jews don't follow rules of nature. God tells Abraham, gaze at those stars. He, says, he doesn't say look at the stars. He says gaze at them. Because, again, the term look or see and it's from below to above but to gaze is from above to below he's above those stars he's above the constellation he's above nature I'll tell you a great story here's the story you ready I have to be a little bit vulnerable with you I was preparing for this class today John, you saw me in my office. We were talking about the weather shivering, but it was worth it. <laughs> the door open, but it was... We were talking about the cold earlier. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't have a story. 
we have beautiful messages, but we need some sort of contemporary story. And I couldn't think of anything. Okay, no story this week. As we all log on, I'm like, oh, quickly write it down. Okay, so here's the story. It just pop- I forgot about it. it. popped in my mind. This story happened with my sister-in-law's grandfather. So my brother's wife, her grandfather. He's a he. He passed away um, probably eight years ago, maybe seven years ago. He was a Chabad Chassid. He was an American. Grew up in Flatbush or Boar Park or whatever it is. Real American. And he was drafted to the army, Vietnam War. And he's a he was like a good Jewish boy chick. He, you know, he's not the type of guy you'd expect to go to the army. He's certainly not a fighter. He's a very sweet, nice, you know. And he was very hesitant to go and he didn't want to go. And he wrote to the Rebbe. Or I don't know if he spoke to the Rebbe. He had a he had a very close relationship with the Rebbe. He was one as you may know, it's very difficult to um to get to the Rebbe, especially in the later years, to communicate. You know, you have to make an appointment and, you know, because there's a lot of people. But he had like an open door policy. Um, the, the Rebbe really. So the Rebbe actually, he was writing to the Rebbe expecting some sort of advice on how to get out of it or a blessing. And, and the Rebbe actually encouraged them to go for whatever reason. Which he wasn't too happy about, but he went. He went to he went to serve. The day or coming weeks prior to his departure. To his deployment. It was Simchas Torah. And you saw what Simchas Torah was like at Chabad. You can only imagine what Simchas Torah is like at Chabad World Headquarters. All right, if we were just to use the our, our uh, process of elimination, our deduction here, right? The Rebbe, out of an entire crowd of thousands and thousands of people, spots him and encourages him to say L'chaim. says L'chaim. Rebbe again encourages him to say L'chaim, says L'chaim. Again to say L'chaim, says L'chaim. Seven times the Rebbe tells him to say L'chaim. The guy is like, whoa. <laughs> Somebody had to walk him home. The Rebbe made him say L'chaim seven times and nobody knew why. It was very mysterious. He goes on his deployment and one of his um, officers was a anti-Semite. And a, a a brutal, horrible anti-Semite who would torment this guy. And he put him in a position where he basically was going to have a drinking contest with him. Thinking that he's the small little puny Jewish boy chick and he's certainly going to lose. And if he loses, you know, there'll be whatever the consequence was. I, I don't, I'm forgetting the details of the story. They go and pour he pours the guy a glass like this. <laughs> seven drinks, seven times. After the seventh time, the anti-Semite who intru- who initiated this uh, game died. Now he has this flashback of just a couple of days or weeks prior. This guy's in 770. And the Rebbe is giving him seven blessings, seven l'chaims. Fast forward a little bit later, he has these seven glasses 
He's this little puny guy and he's totally fine. And the guy who's trying to drink him under the table, you know, and using him as an anti anti-semitically as a as a you know as a game, <laughs> drops dead. The guy, unfortunately, without even knowing it, killed himself. Now, which part of this story makes any bit of sense? <laughs> because Jews don't go by what makes sense. We don't do what makes sense. Uh, um, Raleigh and I had a meeting with a fellow who uh, is part of an part of another community, and he wanted marketing advice. He's part of another synagogue, and he uh, and he he says, "Look, I want." Uh, you guys fill the Bankhead Theater on Hanukkah. You guys, you guys get things going. What do you? What is your secret? And the answer was, look, I could show you which Canva files we use and stuff like that, but that's not the point. Our secret is we don't do what makes sense. We did Yom Kippur at a hotel. It didn't make any sense. We have a beautiful building, sort of. We have a building. <laughs> Let's just say we have a building. We have a building. <laughs> we have a building. Why would we pay for a hotel? Because there's people that wanted to spend Yom Kippur at a hotel and 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 do it right. Didn't make any sense. In fact, if it made sense, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> makes more sense to stay in Brooklyn. <laughs> Doesn't make fight. Not, nothing here makes sense. But but as Jews, we're we're way beyond that. Let's zoom down the zip down the page a little bit. Go to eight lines from the bottom of the page. He does not desire. Do you see it towards the the end of the line? He does not desire those who place trust in their strength. Sorry, in the strength of the horse. Nor does he want those who rely on the thighs, the swiftness of man. So we're secure, we're good, because we're not subject to nature. But we got to keep our end of the deal. Where are we going to put our trust in? And as you've seen in many of our classes, circle back to this idea of betachon, of trusting in God. And God doesn't want us to trust in the strengthness of our horse, our cars, our homes, our houses. That's not what's going to make us strong. He desires those who fear him or revere him. Those who long for his kindness. That's really what it's about. There's a book called The Gate of Trust, Shar HaBetachon, by Rabbeinu Bachaya. Fascinating um, book, what Jews have been turning to for many, many generations. Um, when people have been going through rough times, it's considered like the the Jewish antidote to anxiety, because it it helps us build resilience and inner strength and trust. And in in, in the introduction, he writes that God makes us as secure as what we are as secure as what we trust in. So if we trust God, that's how secure we are. <laughs> if we trust in our strength. That's how secure we are. That's going to fluctuate. That's going to change. Can't be strong forever, right? If we trust in our own wealth, well, that the pendulum swings. If we trust in our, you know, our resources, 
they could, God forbid, dry out. But if we trust in God, we have an endless supply. If we show that we trust in God by revering him, by honoring him, by respecting what he wants, we're good to go. We have that stability. And again, God, God is literally looking at each and every one of us. He's counting each and every single star. He's naming each star. He knows every single one of us by name. We have whom to trust in because he literally cares. And the greatest indication that he cares. Take a look on page 34. The last three or four lines. Where it says he tells. Do you see it? He tells his words, Torah. Referring to the Torah, to Jacob. Meaning the, the children of Jacob, the Jewish people. His statutes and ordinances to Israel, the Jewish people. So the Torah and mitzvahs, he gives it to the Jewish people. You know how we know he values you? Because he has high expectations of you. So when, um, I'm, I'm sure you remember, like when you have, if you have teenagers or if you had teenagers, your kid makes a mess. It, it's kind of like, in you know, in the room, it's like kind of an, like, oh, come on, man. When your friend's kid makes a mess, like, oh, well. <laughs> okay, it's annoying that there's a mess, but you're not as, like, you're not disappointed. You might be annoyed that there's a mess, but you're not disappointed in the same way. When it's your kid, you have high expectations. God has expectations of us. There's accountability. There's 613 commandments. There's an entire Torah. The Midrash says, actually, on this verse, it's his Torah, it's his commandments, because God actually performs them as well. The Midrash says anything that God tells us to do is because he himself does it. On some level, not, not necessarily in the same uh, physical level, but, for example, Talmud says, you'll see this soon, Mike, in Tractate Brachos, the, brachot, the, the Talmud says that, the, that just like the Jewish people have tefillin, in, in our tefillin, we praise God. God has some sort of tefillin that praises the Jewish people. That that and there, there's some sort of metaphorical um, idea of God performing mitzvahs. He's literally giving us His mitzvahs. He's giving us His values that He adheres to, and He wants us to share in that because He cares deeply about every single one of us. And that's why I'll just end off with this: when God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. Give us the Ten Commandments. He gave us the whole Torah. But what did God say? I am the Lord your God. And in Hebrew, in English, when you say you to an individual or you say you to a larger population, it's the same word, singular, plural. It's the same thing. But in Hebrew, the word your for an entire population is not the same as in the singular for you. And God says, I am the Lord your God. And he says it in the singular, even though he's talking to three million Jewish people. He's talking to every single individual. Every single individual matters. Every single star is counted. Every single star is named. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.